Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, episode 77 of The Film File. The film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Not only a great show, but a great year. And we are back. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Film File, your favourite film show. I am Lee Ford, and I, as ever, am joined. No, I'm in honour of joining, should I say, Andy Meakin. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Lee. Uh, it's uh, so kind of you. I'm glad you're honoured because uh, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Andy? You well? Yeah, um, it's, it, I've, I've had a week off work. I've not been in work for six days now. I'm back to work tomorrow. So I've, I've had a bit of downtime, a bit of relaxation. Uh, I had my second jab, so I'm now magnetic Ooh, and I can yeah. control the internet with the power of my mind and things like that. And Have you stuck a spoon to your nose yet? Uh, I've, I used to do that as a kid. It never used to work <laughs> then. It's not going to work now. Yeah, it's, it's called sweat, if anyone looking how to do that trick. Uh, speaking of sweat, there was, um, there was a huge sweating moment this weekend when my computer decided to go pop, fizz, bang. And uh, stop working. <laughs> yes, well, I got your uh, I got your message on how to bring down an empire. I sent you a message after I'd already been trying to fix it for about two and a half hours, and I was uh, what little heard I've got left on my head was getting clutched and pulled out in frustration. And yeah, you, you offered to, if if necessary, pop round with some spare components so that we could get something up and running to keep things going. But oh, oh man. I managed to find multiple boxes around the house with all my spare parts and components from because I've always built my own computers. So there's always spares somewhere. And I've basically ended up Frankensteining a computer together. But it's uh, working. Which, over on Twitter, when I said I, don't, I might not be around for MTOS because the computer's broken, um, I'm trying to Frankenstein something together. Uh, one of the regular contributors sent a gif of like the, he's alive, alive thing from Frankenstein. I went, I'm expecting something like this. So when I got it working, I did a recording of myself in black and white on my phone, turning around from the computer working, going, it's alive, alive. It, it was a <laughs> hairy <laughs> moment because I, I, was, I was imagining that, you know, it, no one would have thought if you were going to bring down the film file empire <laughs> that it was going to be a, a loose component in your computer. And I, I thought it was going to be something, something apocalyptical for instance, that might have brought it down. Ooh, you almost said it. <laughs> I almost said you it. almost said it. <laughs> Andy and I did an interview, uh, which we have to thank Harvey for, on, a, on another podcast yesterday. Uh, and the running gag was my mispronunciation of that particular word uh, for some time. But uh, it all adds to the joy. So this week we've got, as ever, an action-packed show for you. We're going to be reviewing Chris Pratt in Amazon's Tomorrow War. We're both going to get a little freaky and review freaky. And Andy's going to give his thoughts on Fear Street, part one, 1994, which you can see on Netflix. We'll be doing a deep dive into the career of Richard Donner, who sadly passed away as of this recording late last night. And we'll take a quick look at last week's Loki in anticipation of this week's Loki. And of course, we'll be bringing you news, reviews and views in a section that we like to call the news. Let's start the news by me just getting something off my chest about an actor who's doing nothing at this point in time, who's decided to get very above his station, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know whether you've seen the interview that Stephen Dorff's done with The Independence. I've seen the headlines, briefly to, to put it, basically disliking the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, I think Scarlett Johansson 
uh, is embarrassing in in the Black Widow role or movie. I, I it was it was just clickbait interviews and um, that kind of that kind of journalism. Those kind of interviews. I, I don't have a tendency to follow up because I, I, it's someone's opinion. What does it matter? I, I, I like Stephen Dorff as an actor. Don't know him as a person. I'm I'm not interested, Stephen. Sorry. It's it's there to either gain interest and in, and uh, about something that you want to say or you want to promote. But it's it's not particularly helpful in in or useful in the great scheme of things. But that's just me. Well, it's not particularly promoting anything. There's nothing on his radar for getting released. So no idea where this interview came from. But for those who've not seen the interview, the thing which is causing controversy online is his statement. I don't want to be in Black Widow. It looks like garbage to me. It looks like a bad video game. I'm embarrassed for those people. I'm embarrassed for Scarlet. I'm sure she got paid five, seven million bucks, but I'm embarrassed for her. Okay, first first of all, how patronising. Scarlett Johansson doesn't need your pity. She's not embarrassed to do those films. She speaks often in interviews of how much she loves the range of work that she gets. She's enjoying her work. Why should you feel embarrassed for her? And only last year, she was up for two awards, one for Marriage Story and one for Jojo Rabbit, two widely contrasting films, and she's a quality actress. She doesn't need the pity of a washed-up actor who can't get work these days. And some people have rushed to his defence to say, oh, well, you know, this is similar to Scorsese and he's allowed to say the things. There's a difference here, because the difference is Scorsese earned his right to say he doesn't see Marvel films and superhero films as cinema. Dorf isn't just targeting blockbusters. He's attacking the whole industry because he went on to attack the Oscar films of this year with the statement, this year's Oscars were the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. My business is becoming a big game show. You have have actors that don't have a clue what they're doing. You have filmmakers that don't have a clue what they're doing. We're all in these little boxes on these streamers, TV, film. It's all one big expletive of content now. This year's Oscars, I'm sorry, but I know that the show was a bit of a shambles, but the films that were up and the nominations that were up this year were some of the strongest in recent history. So he's attacking people who are actually the the, the next developing directors, the next developing actors. He was attack, attacking people who are actually promising a good career ahead of them. I don't get where he's coming from. I really don't get it. I don't know whether he's just upset that he's not getting work these days and he's just throwing his toys out the pram. I don't know whether the interviewers provoked him into being this abrasive, but he's not come across really well. And he's basically attacked the industry that he wants to succeed in. Who's going to want to work with someone with that kind of attitude? I don't know. I, I mean, Stephen Dorff's had a, a, an odd career. He started out as a kind of real wonder kid. Patchy at best is is to say that I think he's I, I think he can be a phenomenal screen presence. And, and I remember him as a phenomenal screen presence. I've not seen. No, I tell a lie. I saw him in True Detective and I thought he was great in the third season of True Detective. But he's, he's not a, a household name. Uh, and his career is a, is a little bit all over the place. Maybe it's uh, it's a case of, of feeling sour about an industry that, that's not reaching out to him more. Maybe he's genuinely upset with the way and the direction the industry's taking. That's the thing about interviews. You you encapsulate an hour to 15 minutes to an hour's worth of conversation and, and draw some kind of conclusion to it. So the thing, and I, I mentioned this yesterday when we did, did the interview on Harvey's show, uh, is it's it's soon forgotten all this kind of thing, and then we soon move on to it. Especially now, it's like a bad tweet. Uh, it's out there. It, it has its it has its cry in the wilderness for a little while, and then then we move on to the next outrage. There's there's, there's two things which I find pitiful, and that's the word outrage and offended, because they mean so many different things to so many different people. 
I, I'm outraged and offended by boy bands, but I don't have the police go and hunt them down. And, um, you know, it's it's what was that? What's that old saying? One man's meat is a, another man's poison. You know, because I've moved into vegetarianism over the last uh, um, last year, I've had somebody being outraged by the fact that I'm not eating meat. And if they invite me around for dinner, what are they going to serve? Yeah, who cares? Who Ultimately, who cares? Uh, it'll It'll be gone and we'll move on. Uh, and it's just a shame that Stephen Dorff uh, has, has found a platform that he can yell at, but it will be quickly, quickly forgotten. The, the downside of it is a, that people will hang on to every word, try to analyse it. They now have a platform where they can analyse it and, and, and pass on uh, uh, their views. But ultimately, who cares? So moving away from that, and, you know, we, we mentioned Scarlett Johansson was up for Academy Awards this year and how Stephen Dorff doesn't like the Academy Awards. Well, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has announced that the relax- Relaxed eligibility rulings for Oscar eligibility is going to continue for this year's selections, which means that just like last year, films will still be eligible if they don't get a theatre release in 2021. Uh, They can be eligible if they pay to be showcased in the Academy screening room, which is a secure portal which is available to Oscar voters. But that's the only eligibility that they need. And they further confirmed that the following year will see a return to a stricter qualifying requirements. So for the 2022 awards which will play in the early 2023 then films will have to have that short period in actual cinemas and theatres in addition the best picture is now definitely going to have 10 nominees no fluctuation no years where it'll just be six none where it'll be eight it's got to be a strict 10 each year and only digital materials are permitted for screeners screenplays etc being sent out there's no more physical media being sent out i i can assume that they're trying to manage to get digital watermarks put onto things so that that way they can stop this proliferation of screener copies managing to make it into the wild and also the fact that it cuts down on the carbon footprint as well yeah yeah it's a, it's it's a positive move uh, there's a lot of other things that the academy are thinking of at the moment for the redevelopment and the new awards that they might introduce but these are the only confirmations at this point in time but it, it's like that they're starting to listen to some feedback after years of being you know criticized for being quite a stagnant organization and a bit out of touch they're starting to listen to what the commenters are saying about the Academy and they're trying to make a definite improvement. What else do you have? So release date shuffle Ah. that song that's at number one, once again, (laughs) last week when we said about how Dune had moved to October the 22nd, which made for a busy week and one of the films would fall to one side. Well, it was revealed this week that last night in Soho has now graciously moved to the 29th of October instead, which also gives the film, which comes from Edgar Wright and it's kind of like a supernatural time travel horror film. It gives it a very prime time Halloween opening slot, which is probably going to do that film absolute wonders. I think it's the best time to release it. And I think it's the best time to release it because we don't have a homegrown horror franchise in this country. And I think the idea of having that works really, really well. It's nice to see some British offerings thrown up for for. For, for Halloween, uh, uh, where we come from, a cinematic history of of doing great horror movies that that just seems to have, have passed mm-hmm. on now, and and it's great to see Edgar Wright embracing that history that we were once the biggest country in the world to do to do horror films. Yep, the old Hammer horror era. And, yeah, um, absolutely, Amicus stuff, all those sort of movies. We were. Uh, you know, we basically were, that's my childhood right there. Yeah, we we the majority of us of a certain age were introduced to horror movies, uh, which when we were 
far too young to see them uh, uh, in the cinema or even on on VHS or whatever you know our introduction to horror was was hammer movies and, and amicus movies now whilst fast nine is inexplicably managing to wow audiences worldwide and if you want to know why I say inexplicably listen to last week's episode <laughs> you'll find out it's put the franchise ahead of the x-men franchise for total gross internationally which puts it now behind only the Star Wars franchise the Marvel franchise bond, and Potter. Uh, director Justin Lin has revealed that the franchise that insists on bringing back dead characters now might actually bring back an actual deceased actor. Paul Walker, who played Brian O'Connor and was given a fan-pleasing send-off a couple of films back using his brother as a stunt double for some CGI trickery to be put over to mask over the replacement, is being considered to be brought back into the film. As Justin Lin has said, bringing him back is something I think about every day. As we approach the end of the franchise, it's a conversation I'm having. And I think about this possibility every day. But I know the decision to keep the character alive in the franchise was made while I was gone. So I have to be respectful about it. I need to feel good and confident in what happens. I don't feel good about this whole aspect. No, I I think it's slightly disrespectful to... to it may be something that the fans want, but I, I think it's disrespectful. Having grown up through an era of where you could call something a, a, a Bruce Lee movie by using some outtakes from Game of Death and a, and a stand-in actor who really bore no resemblance to Bruce Lee. And, and looking back on those movies and just how shoddy pieces of work they were and, and it was just disingenuous to, to the star in the first place. There, there's probably a huge amount of fans who would love to see somehow Paul Walker brought back personally, unless it was for some sort of a cameo appearance, which was important to the plot rather than just a gimmick, then uh, no, it doesn't hold much sway with me. I'm I'm being more negative this week than I normally am. We're only three stories in. (laughs) Sorry, I I think I sparked you off on the Stephen Dorff thing. Uh, (laughs) But now, I mean, with my aspect on this, and even before this news broke, I discussed this at work about how the franchise keep bringing people back. Let's hope they don't bring back Paul Walker. And everyone who spoke to at work says, oh, no, he got a good send-off. That's the worst thing about it than considering bringing it back is that after he passed away, they did a very respectful way of writing him out of the film franchise, having his character leave that life and go off to live a normal life and be happy and settle down. And it was a good send off. And it had like a very tearing up kind of moment of like seeing seeing him riding off into the sunset kind of thing. You don't need to undo all that by having the character come back, especially when you're going to know, well, it's not actually the, the same actor. It's just his brother with a CGI mask over him. I don't think it's a good idea, but this is the franchise that has never been about good ideas. And also, at the same time, Helen Mirren has hinted that the idea of Michael Caine being added to the cast as her ex-husband, because why not at this point, has been floated by Vin Diesel. And not forgetting there's a plethora of possible spin-offs that are on the way, because why not? Vin Diesel might as well just keep making money out of this because he's one of the producers. Well, talking of which, I was just about to interrupt you there, Andy, because... Uh, Cypher is in development, uh, which Vin Diesel has approved, which is, and you'll know this better than I, it involves Charlize Theron's villainous character, Cypher, making a return. Uh, it means nothing to me as the entire franchise. Means nothing to me. I, I don't. I don't want to see Charlize Theron do this. I wanted to see see her do other things. I'm happy with her doing other things, but she was terrible in the latest film. She was instantly forgettable, except for a rather bizarre hairstyle that she suddenly adopted. That both me and one of my mates at work went, "What have they done to her?" <laughs> uh, he's basically wanting to spin off pretty much every character with their own film. But if you are a fan of bland action 
particularly bland sci-fi action which riffs on pretty much every generic trope from the genre, yet thinks it's doing something epic, well, Vin Diesel again has confirmed plans are underway for a fourth Riddick film. Writer and director David Toy has finished the script and the plan is set to shoot in Australia where the first film, Pitch Black, was made. I, I loved Pitch Black. It wasn't a Riddick film. It was a horror, fi- a sci-fi horror film where Riddick was a side character. I don't know how this ended up being a Riddick franchise. I think this is more to do with David Toy than I think it is to do with Vin Diesel. Uh, David Toy had a... Uh a universe he wanted to create and, and the Riddick character being central to this. I really like Pitch Black. I think Pitch Black is a great film, a really tight uh, science fiction horror film with so many different other elements to it, which make it work and make it stand out. Never saw the Chronicles of Riddick, the second movie, but I was back for the third film, which I liked a, a lot. I don't have a problem with this. And to me, his other than the Iron Giant and, and Groot, I think it's the, the, the other best character he plays and and I I'm interested to see where they can go with this and I trust David Toy has has been an interesting writer director to be able to move and go in other directions because initially it started out as a kind of an aliens-esque film Um, and it built up this empire Mm. in the second film uh, and the franchise has gone off in 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 another direction in the third film so I'm not adverse to seeing another Riddick film because I think each film has been different enough to, to play in this this larger universe that he's created. Me being less cynical at that point. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've calmed down on your cynicism. Well done. Um, I'll, Damn I'll you, take Stephen Dorff. <laughs> if that wasn't exciting enough, the guy so woodenly made for perfect group casting has also hinted that another excellent Riddick game may be in the pipeline because those games were, well, they were games. That's about it, the best I can say. <laughs> I thankfully never played them. <laughs> the best news, however, that from all this is that Vin Diesel's a very busy boy in the coming years. Guardians 3, Muscle, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Fast 10 and 11, all scheduled over the next few years. So it could be 2023 before Riddick 4 gets round to shooting. So fingers crossed, another pandemic slows that one down. As you can tell, I'm not really a big fan of the Reddick franchise. <laughs> no, I'm starting to get the impression I usually get about me. Now, back to Charlize Theron. Now, one thing that did get me excited is she's confirmed that a sequel to Old Guard is ready to go. Yes, I saw that this week. And uh, um, it wasn't without its problems, but there was a lot more that I liked about it than I disliked about it. And I'm interested to see more. Uh, Greg Rooker created the comic book for Image and he's scripted, um, which is intriguing enough for comic creators to come in and script their own work but he scripted the first movie and there seemed an awful lot about that particular universe that they had yet to explore so i'm i'm way up for an old card and and apparently did very very well on netflix and there was always going to be the possibility of even more films yeah it got positive reviews and it also got a very good viewership pickup um, for Netflix so it was inevitable that a sequel was going to get made and I loved the fact that it was a it was a groundwork laying world building kind of or like yeah. starter film that like you say it teases what they could do with it and it'd be interesting to see where they go on future films and excited for this shooting on the sequel is expected to begin early next year so that'll be one that'll probably land on Netflix back end of next year early 2023 do we know who's directing at this stage is it the same director coming back it's the same director coming back I believe okay that was the only downside for me uh, I thought she was great at the character bits but I thought her action directing was a little bit weak and it hinted at good action but it needed to have especially in the in now we live in an age where we've got John Wick and nobody out there. 
I think the action sequence were the only thing that that made it feel small uh, because it, it definitely worked for characterization. Yeah. But it, I think it needed either a better second unit action director on on board or better set pieces. Or maybe just introduce swords and have them chop each other's heads off and uh, be the Highlander ripoff that it actually should be. <laughs> because who wants to live forever? <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking of living forever, then that, that was a nice way to drop you me see, a segue in there. so slick. Amblin's last voyage of the Demeter is finally making a move towards filming with six foot seven actor Javier Botet cast in the role as Dracula. Now, the story, for those who aren't sure about this, is drawn from the very short section of Bram Stoker's Dracula when the vampire's coffin is being transported from Carpathia to London. And it's going to focus on how Dracula slowly picks off the crew of the ship one by one before it drifted into dock with everyone dead or, or missing on board. The film will tell that journey in full. David Dasmalchian, who's in Suicide Squad, Liam Cunningham from Game of Thrones, are the ship's first mate and captain. The director of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Andre Ovriedel, is directing. And that was a film that caught me by surprise. It was I, I thought it had just that nice, chilling atmosphere to it. Well, he's a, he's a good director. If you ever get a chance to see, I think he did Troll Hunters or uh, the uh, Finnish or Swedish film, which was a great film. He is a great director. Mm. And uh, yeah, Scary Stories was was pretty good. Pretty good indeed. So I'm now more interested than I was. This script or a version of this script has been knocking around for years. I've got a couple of original yeah. versions of it, which I'm sure aren't the version that we will see. There was a, a, an interesting BBC radio play about the same incident uh, some Halloweens ago, which was very good, uh, and of course they did get it did get a, a, an episode in the Stephen Moffat Dracula adaptation from a couple of Christmases back. So it's a story that's been wanting to be told for for some yeah. time, and now it's finally going to be um, getting someone dead life to it. Yeah, I guess somebody's somebody's good to get their teeth into. Uh, can we do any more Dracula puns? No. <laughs> I mean, if it turns out being good, I'll give them a lot of thanks. Oh yeah, move on, move no, on. We'll that was there. my fault. I... <laughs> <laughs> so Steven Soderbergh has been talking about his next project, the Zoe Kravitz-led Kimmy confirming it is pretty much a modern update of Coppola's The Conversation. Okay. Um, as Soderbergh himself describes it, the aftermath of COVID-19 is an aspect of the story. So there's that because it ties into certain psychological issues that our lead character is battling. Overlaid is a very contemporary zeitgeisty issue of giant tech companies who have a lot of listening devices in a lot of homes. What are they picking up? What if you worked for one of those companies analyzing streams that have been flagged for some reason or another? that the voice recognition software, there's some aspect of the recording that it doesn't understand or it has a question about, and it gets kicked to a human analyst to listen to it so they can go, oh, that's a slang term for this thing that hasn't heard of. Now I've got to load it into the system so the software can now recognize it. This is what the person who's the lead character's job is, and she hears something that sounds not cool. It's pretty much the 2021 version of the conversation and a little bit of rear window and a little bit of panic room. So all my favorite stuff. So he's tapping into things that have inspired him throughout the years to give him a modern day sci-fi led alternate take. I, I'm interested. I, I'm a big fan of Steven Soderbergh's work in, in every genre that he plays with. And he, you think about it, he's played across practically all genres, to be honest. Big fan of the conversation. Also big fan. And it also reminds me a little bit of De Palma's Blowout, which if you've not seen is well worth yeah. seeing and we should do as a deep dive one day. Oh yeah. That, that'd be a good pick. Um, I've got a fair bit of casting news for different projects to rattle through. So whilst not officially announced, with the huge cast list already revealed, Ethan Hawke has been spied on set during the filming of Knives Out 2, which is coming from creator Ryan Johnson. We already know that Dave Bautista 
is going to be in the film, and he's been spotted on set sporting pink jeans, a feathered fedora, and an open leopard print shirt, looking very dapper. Uh, Daniel Craig and Janelle Monet have been spotted on set, and so is Leslie Odom Jr. with Kate Hudson alongside. Uh, meanwhile, over on John Wick 4, they've added British martial artist and action movie icon Scott Adkins to the cast. Adkins has had roles in a variety of action films over the past two decades, including the Bourne series, Ip Man 4, Zero Dark Thirty, Doctor Strange, Grimsby. You name it, he's had some presence in there because his martial arts skills mean that the action can be given some authenticity. Over on the Dungeons and Dragons films, and reports are coming in that Benedict Cumberbatch will be joining the cast of the adaptation of the Dice and Paper Tabletop RPG, which will see him re-team with Star Trek star Chris Pine. Uh, Shooting on the film's underway, and this won't be Cumberbatch's first foray into the D20 world of Dungeons & Dragons because he did voice an animated short which served as an origin tale of one of the characters from the Forgotten Realms campaign, which I can see that means nothing to you. <laughs> so you saw me drifting off then. <laughs> I just heard uh, uh, tabletop game, dice, um, and I was thinking, what am I going to have for tea? But for people like me who like have been embedded in that world for decades, having names like Cumberbatch involved in it gets me a bit excited. Sydney Lemon from Hellstrom has been cast as the mother of Charlie in Firestarter for Bloomhouse. Okay. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens, Kimiko Glenn and James Marsden will lead the voice cast for the Netflix movie My Little Pony The Next Generation. Okay. <laughs> My Little Pony is a big thing again. It's it's risen to prominence again and Netflix are doing a movie with some big names in it. The remake of the 1990s cult classic comedy House Party, and I think you're stretching the definition of classic and comedy there, <laughs> as cast Shakira Janepe, Andrew Santino and Bill Bellamy. The, for people who don't know this classic film, it's about a bunch of friends who want to throw an epic party. Full stop. That's the story. And the Bruckheimer produced family action feature Secret Headquarters has cast Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy as the villain. The film will star Owen Wilson, Michael Pena, Walker Scoble, Momoa Tramada, Abby James Witherspoon and Kessel Curtis in a film that's been described as Home Alone in the Batcave. Sounds intriguing. Be keeping an eye on this one. And that's the rattling through of casting. Well, I've got a bit of news. I know this is not going to make you happy, so I'll say it and we'll move on as quick as possible. But Tom Hardy does have a story credit on Venom 2, because apparently, as the quote goes, he's very involved. And I knew if I said that, how happy you would be by that. So I'm going to quickly move on from that before you have time to even digest it. I'm going to stop you moving on just to say, is this the same Tom Hardy that was responsible for that epic scene in the first Venom film with the with the lobster tank? Could, could be. Could be that Tom Hardy. <laughs> it might be another Tom Hardy. Oh. I don't want to... Uh, I, I don't want to stalk any fires at this point. Just saying. Let's quickly cheer up by just saying that Black Panther 2 has officially started production. Kevin Feige has said that the shoot is clearly very emotional without Chadwick. Much of the original cast are returning, although a confirmed list has not yet been issued. Has anything been released as to what the plot could possibly be at this stage, or is this far too early? Literally in the past 24 hours, they finally released um, plot details, which have emerged through Production Weekly, which teases a clash between Wakanda and Atlantis, which means that the aquatic villain Namor is definitely coming into it. As the plot release says, both Wakanda and Atlantis are hidden civilizations with advanced technology and increased militaristic abilities that decided to separate themselves from the rest of the world for their own safety, and in a way, out of fear. Wakanda feared that their technology would be abused. Atlantis feared that surface dwellers would come and desecrate the mythical city, just as they did so many years ago. And yet their fears escalate even further when these two once hidden nations clash with each other. 
Wakanda and Atlantis have a shockingly intertwined history. Wakanda is the only country in the world with vibranium. However, rumours of its power spread throughout the world and Namor's human father was sent searching for this rare material in Antarctica. So that gives us a pretty much an insight into where they're going. Uh, and there was an announcement or, well, there was speculation, wasn't there, as to who was playing uh, uh, the Submariner. So we'll just have to wait and see. It just seems to have swung by so quickly, doesn't it? Really, we were talking about if and when the next Black Panther was going to come to we're now uh, a week into production on it. And and clearly there will be some kind of announcement on, on cast at some point, probably soon as, as, as stories and behind the scenes picks get infiltrated into the press. But it'd be interesting how, how Marvel controlled this as well. I reckon they're going to keep a lot of secrets and a lot to one side and have this as a big reveal when the main trailer drops with Black Panther 2. And I'm hoping that it manages to get away with it. I'm hoping that it doesn't get sneaky pictures from set getting leaked online yeah. and ruining what is going to be a huge surprise. What, whichever direction they go on, it's going to surprise people. Um, another film that gets me excited, even though I know no details about it. Wes Anderson is planning to shoot his next film in Spain this September. And Tilda Swinton has confirmed that she's going to star in it. There's no story details, but Swinton has confirmed that unlike French Dispatch, which is released this October and I'm desperately waiting for, this new film will not necessarily be specifically relevant to the location it's filmed in. Anderson's not spilling any details, but he was initially planning a Rome shoot, but switched to Spain earlier this year. Well, anything that Wes Anderson brings out, we are so interested here at The Film File. So interested. Oh, he's, he's one, of, one of our favourite creative yeah, directors. A, an individual voice. In a, in a wilderness of content. And thinking about it, we've not had chance to review a Wes Anderson film since we've had the show, because I think the last outing would have been Isle of Dogs, which I think was just as we started or just before just, we started. Just before the show. I mean, we did cover Rushmore as one of our deep dives, uh, but I am looking forward to dissecting a new Anderson film when it lands so French Dispatch oh October can't come fast enough and to fight to round off the news we spoke about the original film a few episodes ago but now it's been revealed that Romero's Night of the Living Dead is getting another remake in animated format Jason yes. Axon who gave us To Your Last Death is going to direct this adaptation and the voice cast includes Josh Dumal as Harry Cooper Jewel Hill as Ben Catherine Isabel as Barbara, James Rode Rodriguez as Tom, Katie Sackhoff as Judy, Will Sasso as Sheriff McKelland, and Jimmy Simpson as Johnny. And Night of the Animated Dead is what it's getting called, and it will land later this year. We kind of covered this when we spoke heavily about Night of the Living Dead and its influence and all that. And we're not, do we need a remake of it? Even no. if it's going to be in a different animated format, the, the original film still stands up quite well. I, I don't quite see the point. Yeah. I mean, I'll give it a shot. But I'm keeping my expectations very low on whether this is going to actually add anything to the story. I, I just don't see the point. And we, we've had a, a fairly decent remake. I know there's a lot connected with rights issues about uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and that's why there was, was the first remake. And that's why the Night of the Living Dead Part 2 and Part 3 were kind of connected but weren't but only name only and it's all down to no one expected the original film to be such a huge hit it was a mm. an underground independent little film that took on a life of its own pun intended but there is always been elements about who controls and there are people who funded it or people involved in the original production who have a have a sway in it 
so the more that they can they can do with it the more importantly they they get a, a, a they get a payment from it so so they just you know it's 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 chucking in the kitchen sink and everything else just to get in another bit of name recognition for night of living dead so unless it turns out to do something unique do something with the story that no one expected and takes us in uh, a slightly different but over familiar way then it's an animated night of the living dead always go back to the original and that is the news enjoying what you're listening to so far good isn't it well if you missed any of the previous episodes just head over to your favorite podcast platform and search film file and if you're not a subscriber then hit that subscription button because andy and i will dine out on human flesh because we enjoy you hitting that subscription button so much well sometimes you don't even have to talk us into it we'll do it anyway so andy when you're not chomping down on a human arm (laughs) how else can you be reached to talk film file so if you want to get in touch with us you can do so over on twitter by following at film uk you can see pictures of us being happy and jolly over on instagram film uk you can email us podcast at film uk and just talk to us about anything film related we're happy to listen tell us your favorite film tell us a film you want us to check out anyone who gets in touch with us via email we'll get a shout out what more do you need At 7.30 this morning, I was awoken by a phone call from the BBC asking me to comment on the passing of Richard Donner. It wasn't a great way of waking up. To be perfectly honest, an incredibly sad way to wake up because I've been a fan of Richard Donner through most of his filmmaking career. Of course, for me, it started with Superman. But what I didn't realise, I'd been enjoying the work of Richard Donner across his work on television. Richard Donner passed away at the age of 91 and leaves behind a huge legacy of work right through the 70s and the 80s and making a mark today in the way that we watch our movies. I've been the luckiest person in the world. This business has been incredible. I've had nothing but friends. Nora Ephron told Lauren, Lauren produced a wonderful picture with Nora, and Nora told Lauren, she said, you know, in every movie you make, the one good thing about it is you come out with a new friend. And it's so true. But I came out with so many of them. It's extraordinary. I just, this industry is my friend. And it's been just the greatest gift in the world to me. And uh, I don't know what to say. I, 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 there were a couple of bad moments, a couple of bad dudes that um, stepped in our way and and turned a, a dream into a nightmare. Um, but even those I kind of excuse in a, in a way now because they're driving, they were driven to be part of this industry and they would maybe go about it the wrong way to get there. But um, we've all seemed to gone about it, go about it the right way. And uh, I love it. So instead of our usual deep dive into one film, we'll be deep diving into the career of the legendary director, uh, a director behind an eclectic mix of some of the most remembered great time movies. The filmmaker is behind some of the most beloved blockbusters of my generation and hopefully some of your generation, hopping between genres to make major Hollywood entertainment that while action-packed and spectacular, always had that one element. They were impeccably crafted and they had heart and soul. Andy, to talk about Richard Donner, we're going to talk about films that I know you and I both love. And we talked about Superman the movie 
uh, on this very show in one of our deep dives only last year, I believe. So what are your memories of uh, of Richard Donner and, and what work for you just, just jumps out? And keeping in mind that for a lot of people outside of the film industry and outside of film fandom, he wasn't a name that was a household name, but you could instantly recognise just some of his work. And I had that this morning, we're talking about it on the BBC, was you were explaining to people not so much about the man, but about the legacy of work that he's left behind. Yeah, I mean, you said that Superman was basically your introduction, but you didn't realise that you'd seen his work on TV previously. And yeah, for myself, Superman in 1978 was my introduction to him as a filmmaker without acknowledging his name. I think I only started acknowledging his name during the 80s when his name popped up on Lethal Weapon in 1987. Because by that point, I'd already seen The Omen. As a, as a young horror fan, I was introduced to The Omen at maybe too young an age. But wow, that film has stuck with me ever since. And it's, it's within my Blu-ray collection. Most of Donna's films are in my Blu-ray collection collection for very good reason films such as the goonies in 1985 again i didn't recognize his name within there but that's a film that i latched onto and i loved and adored and so like i say it was the late 80s when lethal weapon was sold with richard donner's lethal weapon i was like hang on this guy's this guy's something and then because i was getting to that era where i was starting to read empire magazine etc i started researching and went that's who he is right what else has he done? And then I found out that he'd done Scrooged as well. And he's he's done films such as The Toy, which is not a well-known film, but I have a fondness for The Toy. It's a Richard Pryor film from early 1980s, just when Richard Pryor was on that peak of his career. Not a great Richard Pryor film, but I was at the right age for that to give me some enjoyment. And it's like you say, he's been behind so many films that you might not know his name, but you'll have definitely experienced his films, be it the Lethal Weapon series, be it Maverick, the 1994 relaunch, um, which had Mel Gibson in it. Great film. Well worth checking out if you've not seen it. Or is work work behind the scenes as producer on things like the X-Men franchise or the Tales from the Crypt franchise. His name is over so much to do with cinema that you've definitely, in some way, shape or form, experienced his work somewhere along the lines. That's that's interesting. That's the the way that I described it today when I was talking to the interview. It clearly wasn't a, a film fan and, and had no reason to be. And then I mentioned, I actually mentioned Scrooge and he went, I didn't know he did that. That's one of my all-time go-to Christmas film. He was a, a strong filmmaker across a, a, a multitude of, of, as I said before, genres, different styles of, of movie making. Uh, and he always brought that one thing to it. And, and that's down to his career in television is he brought, he brought craft. He wasn't a he wasn't a flashy director. He didn't have a a, a unique visual style. He was a workmanlike director, but it, it had it had craft and it had heart and soul. And you always thought he was doing the best possible work that he could do, even if the material wasn't the best material. Richard Donner was always at his A game, and always provided an entertaining piece of work. And I think that was his craft, and that's why he was so beloved across the industry. He was also apparently a really nice guy. Actors liked to work with him. He had uh, uh, strong political beliefs uh, and wasn't afraid to um, use his films as soapboxes to talk about those political beliefs. Uh, he made some some interesting choices. He did the medieval fantasy Ladyhawk starring Matthew Broderick and Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. And even though it underwhelmed at the box office, it gave an opportunity to do a, you know the firm family favourite 
The Goonies, and he worked with Spielberg on that. And again, he was just the director that you could go to that just had such a, a great sense of craft. I mean, as I said, when I discovered him on TV and not knowing it, he was a, he was a director of the Twilight Zone and, and and TV westerns and the Banana Splits adventures. He did the live action sequences on those. So he's a, he's a person who learnt his craft and then moved slickly into into movies with a couple of films that that don't really sit that highly on his CV. But when it came to The Omen, that was the game changer. That gave him Superman. And that brought him a film that not only changed his career, but changed the movies that we watch today because Kevin Feige and Jeff Johns all talk about Superman because, A, it's the classic that it is, which is because of Donna. But it it was a game changer for for comic book fans because it did have heart and soul. Uh, And it took it seriously enough to make us believe. And if you don't believe in fantasy films, if your heart doesn't reach out to fantasy films, then I don't think we'd have got the X-Men that we've got today, which, as you said, his production company was behind. And we wouldn't have got the MCU that we know today. And I think that's all down to to Donna and, and Superman the movie. So... A, a, a fine director who made some great movies. It was an interesting career where you look at the range of films that he did. He, he's not someone that you could pigeonhole. He's not someone that you say, oh, he does this kind of thing. He does sci-fi or he does horror or he does action. He did everything. The Omen is still one of the best horror films ever made. In my opinion, it, it's, it far outshines most modern day horrors and i will happily go back to it that the visual effects the practical effects that were used are still shocking today to watch from a head getting severed with glass to a lightning rod falling from a steeple and impaling well one of the doctors as far as i was concerned at the time Um, yeah it's an absolutely powerful film and yeah it, it, it created a whole like a hyper consciousness about religious like doomsday predictions around the time that it got released. It was one of those films in the 70s that just created this hysteria of like horror. Uh, but then you get The Goonies, which is the most, it's the most perfect coming of age kids film that isn't patronizing to the kids. It doesn't play it down to the children. It plays it quite seriously, but with a childish spirit to it. And then you get the utter action fest of the Lethal Weapon series, which we spoke about last year because I watched all four of them. And they do peter off on the third and fourth one but those first two films still yeah i can re-watch the lethal weapon one and two over and over again and like you said you've mentioned scrooge on the radio today and got the response of that's one of my favorite christmas films and it's beloved to so many people but they don't know that donna was a part of it because it's so different to everything that he did that's what i loved about him is that you can have a collection of all of his films on a shelf and no matter what mood you're in for what kind of film you want to watch there'll be something in donna's history for you to go, I'm in a bit of superhero move. Oh, I, I want a, just a brainless action film. I want a bit of horror. I want a bit of horror that's more in tone for like watching with the younguns, Tales from the Crypt. There you go. I want just a generic action film like from recent years. Eh, 16 blocks will do. There's something in there for everything. And he did a Western. And you know what I love about Westerns. I love Westerns. Maverick is one of my favourite Westerns. <laughs> but it's a great film, but often often forgotten off, his li- off the list, to be honest, of, of some of the films that, that he did. Yeah, it, it, it just didn't get received very well at the time. I know he got critically well received, but it just didn't find an audience. And it's a shame because I would have loved to have seen that turn into a new franchise. But 
you know, we'll we will never get to find out what happened next. I can't express my love for Richard Donner and his work enough. Lots of his films have had a huge influence on me in one way or the other at different stages of my life. And he's probably one of the most prominent directors throughout my life that has work that I consistently return to. I think that knowingly or unknowingly, he spearheaded a lot of genre game changers. You know, you mentioned that with The Omen. We talked about it with Superman. He did the buddy film again with Lethal Weapon. He did the the big budget family film. And he he, he stepped into all these genres and then launched on, on the back of that. There became, you know, other films that, that followed in his wake. You know, there were suddenly more buddy movies after after Lethal Weapon. There were the, the big budget kids adventures after, after Goonies. And he always had that. He left a mark on Hollywood and, and across so many different genres. And he made films that we just enjoyed because he brought craft and he brought love to it uh, and changed a lot of people's lives. Even if you weren't familiar with the name Richard Donner, then you'd be familiar with the body of work that he's left behind. Um, so so bless him. Uh, Godspeed, Richard Donner. You were a big part of our filmmaking growing up and you'll be sadly missed but we got chance to spend time in the entertainment that you created so andy and i have had a chance to see some of the films that have been released over the last week and we both for a change seen two out of our three films and we're going to kick off with the tomorrow war which landed on amazon this week one minute to jump how are you so calm long story yeah ex-military Kind of a short story, I guess. Welcome to the future. Listen up. We are humanity's last hope. I'm going to save the world. I'll get my coat. Come on! The Tomorrow War. So, former soldier turned scientist teacher Dan Forrester, played by Chris Pratt, witnesses the arrival of human time travelers from the near future, recruiting people from the past to fight in a future in a war against an alien race. Forrester is conscripted into the fate of the wars and the future lies in his hands. Directed by Chris McKay, who was the director of the much-loved Lego Batman movie, this film is a kind of, for me, a 1980s throwback big science fiction film. Heavy on action, heavy on CGI. Andy, what did you think to it? It initially came across to me to be disposable sci-fi, but I actually found that there's a really good emotional heart that beats at the centre of this film. When he starts to make contact with his his superior officer in the future, I'm not going to spoil the reveal of who that person is, but it gives a nice little bit of a poignancy to the whole affair. The time travel element is a simple setup that lets the film basically play an alien invasion story backwards. We start off not knowing where they came from, and are at the end of the war after some setup of the present day lives before the film allows the investigation into the origins of the aliens to play out in the latter half of the film. And I, I always say with alien invasion films that it always hangs heavily on the design of the alien menace. If the alien menace is wrong, if it's too bizarre and it stretches belief, you can't hook into it. If it's too simple and it just seems pointless, the design of the aliens in this worked immensely for me i thought that they were really well thought through they were very feline in nature very graceful and athletic they were predators their skin color and contrast would help them blend into the crumbled surroundings around them and all the things like the bone launcher tendrils all seem to make sense as a genetic 
creation. And so because I believed that those aliens represented something that you could feasibly see, I believed in what was going on on screen. I find a lot of enjoyment in this. Like you say, this is a very good throwback to the 80s kind of sci-fi action. And it doesn't do anything really new. You kind of know where it's going. There's story elements early on that make you question the film. Why aren't the grunts getting told any details? Why is nobody trained? Why are you just thrown into this war? But if you pay attention, it all makes sense as the film rattles along. But on the negative side, and I have to be picky here, Chris Pratt kind of lets it down. You, you've said what I'm going to say, to be honest. The film tries to be serious. It tries to like be a gritty future war movie with a heart in it. But it becomes a Chris Pratt film, which means that he jokes and quips under his breath. Kind of like Star-Lord. So it ends up just being Star-Lord versus the alien menace. And that kind of lost me, which was a shame because everything else around him was working so well to benefit the film. I would go the opposite way. And I thought we were going to agree on something. I thought Chris Pratt as being the humbled straight man didn't work because I thought the character was dull. And then when we got the little bit of charm that Chris Pratt can bring to a party, I thought that's when he became more interesting on screen. But I thought as just another chunky, chiseled ex-soldier with, with PTSD, then I, I, I don't think it, it offered much into the movie. Um, I liked it. Uh, I thought it looked great. I would rather, much rather have seen it on the big screen. And then it, originally it was going to have a Christmas Day yes. release. And it, it's we've talked about this a few times. I think, yes, I would have enjoyed it much more on the big screen because all the plot holes and all the bits of timey-wimey plot that never really does make sense. And I always remember that line in Looper where um, one of the characters says, don't think about it because it's it, you'll, you'll just end up roasting your brain. I, I think came to light with this one because it sort of set questions up that it didn't answer. But I think the set pieces would have looked so much better on, on a bigger screen with a bigger sound system because I found myself getting, not bored, I was never bored, but I got restless with certain pieces. I thought it was half an hour too long. It was a long movie. And I thought it could have shaved some of that exposition off and uh, and made it a much tighter event. But it was interesting enough to, to hold my engagement for the majority of it. I thought more interestingly out of it is that Chris McKay certainly does have a future in live action movie making. And I think interestingly, and I know that he's he's been uh, all over a certain DC character, but I wouldn't be surprised within minutes if uh, Marvel were calling him up and throwing some work his way. But uh, it was an interesting and fun Saturday night flick that wild away two and a half hours without having to think about it too much. But I will just point out any film with J.K. Simmons in just raises my uh, my interest uh, another 10 points. So it probably gets more points because of J.K. Simmons making what is just a kind of an extended cameo. I'd have loved to have seen this on the big screen as well. There's some beautiful, delicious imagery that would have popped out the screen. And the score to the film would rattled along really well. And it would have sounded great and really zinged through cinema speakers. It's a shame that it didn't get a cinema release because there's one particular shot. And all I'm going to say is burning rig, aliens at the bottom diving down it was it was a pure picture frame on the wall kind of moment and seeing it on the small screen was good to have seen that on a 20-foot screen would have been amazing uh, i agree that it could have been shaved a bit it could have lost 20 to 30 minutes without losing any of the tension and any of the setup 
Uh, I have seen some people take that to the extreme and saying this is ridiculous action films being long. They need to make action films 90 minutes long and no more because no action film over 90 minutes is any good. What, you mean like Aliens, Terminator <laughs> 2, Gladiator, Star Wars? Yeah, these films were all two hours, two hours 20, two hours 40. It's not about how long the film is. It's whether it needs to be that long. And this is an example where it didn't necessarily need to be that long. It's not a bad film. It just could have done with a bit of trimming. I enjoyed it. I, th- I think I would have enjoyed it more on the big screen because when you're in the cinema, you get immersed a yeah. bit more. And like you say, the, the bits that slow down, it's easy at home to get distracted. It's easy to think, uh, oh, I haven't got any messages on my phone. Whereas when you're in the cinema, you're just caught up in it. So it is let down by the way it was released. But it's worth watching. Definitely worth watching. I just think tonally, Chris Pratt didn't quite fit tonally for one reason or another. We both differ on why we don't think he fitted, but we both agree that he didn't kind of fit in one aspect or another. And maybe someone else playing that lead role might have done it a bit more justice. So that's Tomorrow War and that's available on Amazon Prime. Okay, the next film we're going to talk about, we've both seen. High schooler Millie Kessler, played by up-and-coming star Catherine Newton, falls foul of a serial killer, the Blissford Butcher, played with force by Vince Vaughn, only to awaken, inhabiting the killer's body. She has 24 hours inside the body of the Blissfield Butcher, inside the body of Vince Vaughn, to reverse the curse, and Millie must corner the killer and prevent him or her, from using her own body to wreak havoc at the Blissfield High prom night. That's me, Millie. Ordinary, boring Millie. The Blissfield Butcher strikes again. I didn't get killed. I woke up in the killer's body. It's me, it's Millie! I want my body back. Come and get it. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I can't wait to kill you. Who knows how many of our friends he's going to kill? Are you sure this is safe? We're in this together. It's a slaughterhouse. Directed by Christopher Landon, who it seems has something to prove, which is he can take an old movie trope and turn it into a horror movie. And just like Happy Death Day, he revisits a well-worn trope and brings a dash of fun and a lot of horror to it. This film was originally going to be titled Freaky Friday the 13th, but potential trademark infringements uh, let him have to rethink it to just being called freaky. But the film wears its all influences on its sleeve and is, I have to say, a bloody joy of a film. Andy, did you like this one as much as apparently it seems to I liked it? I expected to not like this because I'm not that enamoured with Vince Vaughn, but I was completely drawn in. I only I watched this film initially because I loved Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day 2. So I wanted to see, okay, fair enough, let's see what happens. And Catherine Newton has impressed me in recent history. Uh, last year, she wowed me in Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is one of my picks of last year. So that was my draw to it expecting to go, oh, Vince Vaughn's letting this down. But he was magnificent. And I was completely caught up in everything going on. Vince Vaughn playing a teenage girl, flirty nature and everything, is one of the funniest aspects of film in the past decade. I had a (laughs) riot watching this. And this is a film that I will happily re-watch again and again and again. He gets to really go to town with um, his his, proper teenage girl antics. And you can see he's enjoying every moment of it. But more than that, Catherine Newton 
playing a serial killer who wakes up in a different body and realizes how she can manage to use that to her advantage or his advantage, depending on how you're looking at it, is brilliant. It's the initial confusion that she shows on her face when she's only just done the like swap of bodies and can't quite work out what's happened, but then starts to realize how they can be used to their advantage and stalking the corridors of the school. It, both are great lead stars in this film, and they both play against type so brilliantly. I absolutely loved this film. I had a field day watching it, and it's getting picked up on Blu-ray as soon as it comes out on Blu-ray, because this is one that I'm going to keep going back to. I had a blast with it as well. I, I really did. It knows it's a silly film and it plays that all the time. It knows that it, that it's daft and, 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 and gets caught up in those tropes. I mean, there's some, there's one throwaway line with one of the guys going, I'm gay, you're black, we're bound to get killed. It, it knows itself very, very well. <laughs> uh, and every time that Vince Vaughn, mind the absurdity of a six foot guy a six foot five guy with the mannerisms of a teenage girl i just weeped with laughter uh, at every appearance um it's a it, it falls into that interesting area is it a, a horror film comedy or is it a comedy horror film i think there's a distinction between sort of both those genres to a degree uh, american werewolf is a, is a horror film that has comedy in it as opposed to being a comedy that has horror in it so i'm, I'm not quite sure where it lies but i just had i just had a blast it, it has a, a silly premise but all body swap films are silly premises uh it has two great central performances i mean it's very it's very easy to spot vince vaughn because i think he has uh, has the scene stealing uh scenes in it but um which, as I said before, he mines everything out of it. But the Newton's Millie, once she's uh, she's swapped, she she brings that sort of smouldering, uh, glowering killer to life in a way that again you you dis, you see two distinctive characters on screen, uh, and, and she is somebody to watch. And you were right about her earlier work, and she's in uh, in the next Ant Man film playing Scott Lang's daughter, grown up. I just thought it was it was a it was a great film. It had one really nice, interesting, touching scene, which is between Vince Vaughn and and his you know her mother, which I thought was really well done. That elevated it into something a little bit more special. Um, I want to know what more they can do with these genres because I'm I'm there. I'm absolutely in. I thought it was fresh. Mm. I thought it was funny. I thought it was nice and gory. There was enough bloodletting to make you want to look away every now and then. Uh, and it is, and I'll decide it now, it's it's a horror film with comedy. After this, I'll be keeping an eye on everything that Christopher Landon does. I'm hoping that he can keep doing this homages to non-horror genres, throwing horror into them, because he's done it so well so far. Let's see what he does next. Okay, so the last film I haven't seen, because it was a toss-up between Tomorrow War or Fear Street, but you had the chance and the time to see both. So uh, Fear Street, I'm interested in looking at this. The reviews have been pretty good. What are your thoughts? Dude, what the hell? This is exactly why you have no friends. Look, some gal killed a bunch of people at the mall last night. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? Sarah fears that. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? Guys, I think there's someone in the woods. 
So Fear Street Part 1, 1994. This is another film that I saw pop up. Didn't really know what to expect from it, but got a thrill with. Fear Street is a trilogy of films that are drawn from the books by R.L. Stein, who gave us goosebumps, and they're being released over a three-week period on Netflix. A town called Shadyside has a history of serial killers, and the film opens with a new outbreak as a bookstore employee is hunted down and slain in a mall late one night, alongside other mall employees. Meanwhile, neighbouring town, Sunnyvale, is one of the richest and safest towns in the country, with many Shadyside teens theorising that this is all because of a witch known as Sarah Freer, who was persecuted in 1666 and cursed the entire town. The film then follows trope after trope of the slasher horror genre, paying homage to some of the best of the bunch, but in a good and immensely fun way. For a Blur Witch-esque curse to scream, Halloween and more, as we follow a bunch of teens as they seek a way to break the curse that has been placed on one of them. There are scares, there's frights, and there's really sickeningly bloody, brutal effects that keep the pacing going along. By the end, with a little sequel-baiting tease of the next film, I was clamouring for more. And the next film, which releases this week, is going to be a flashback to the summer camp massacres of 1978, (coughs) Friday the 13th, before the third film will go back to the start of it all, The Witch Trials of 1666. And I'm definitely going to be watching each week because I want to see how this curse started and whether in the future they're going to break the curse because each of the next two films are going to bookend the past story with what's happening continuing after the end of the 1994 marvelous it's they could have easily told these films in sequential order and done it 1666 show the curse and build it up but i think that the way that they've done this has teased it beautifully that i now have to watch the next two films there's no i'm in i'm completely in i'm not gonna miss the next two the one thing that that made me not put it at the top of my list to watch this weekend is was the rl strine now not that i'm not a fan of rl strine but were they a little bit too young adult or are they are these movies horror movies in their own right uh, given the way that some of the deaths take place these are not designed for young adults these are there is very bloody and very nasty effects work going on and yes there is some of the rl stein goosebumps-esque kind of approach but i think it's got more of a stranger things kind of vibe okay. than the typical goosebumps that's the one that i got the feel of the most i felt it was more emulating what what the Duffer Brothers are doing with Stranger Things. Okay, so that's our roundup of films uh, for this week. Next week, we'll be bringing you our review of Black Widow. Uh, anything to look out for over the next week on streaming services, Andy? So, I mean, you've already mentioned that at cinemas, it's Black Widow. That's all that there is. On streaming services, on Now TV and Sky, there's Midway, which is the World War II drama with Patrick Wilson, Luke Evans, Woody Harrelson and Dennis Quaid. Could be interesting. Could be another Sky original. On Netflix, there's Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which I've heard a lot of good things of, so I'm going to give it a shot. I've heard good things about it. There's also How I Became a Superhero, but for me, the pick of this week on Netflix is definitely going to be Fear Street Part 2, 1978. So as you know, if you're a regular listener to this programme, that we have been reviewing, episode by episode, each instalment of Loki. We're now up to episode four. Was it a game-changer? Or have you found that you no longer have the time for it? This is our review of Loki Episode 4. So, as you've probably guessed, I've not been as wholly enamoured with Loki as I as I thought I was going to be. And I think, I think partly that's on me. Because I think it's not the series that I had 
in my head. I thought we were going to get the uh, whimsical adventures of a time-traveling Loki each episode in which he would go to a new time, uh, a new timepiece and have to fight some kind of Loki variant and then come back and it would be a procedural time travel cop show, a quantum leap, if you like. But it turned into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, the first episode felt like uh, a lot of exposition. I felt, I then thought it sort of hit its stride with episode two. Episode three ended up being very talky and character building, which is not always a bad thing, and I'm not dismissing that. Episode four for me is when the light totally shined because we found out what Loki is all about and what the series is all about, or so I think. And it had one of the best mid-credit sequences that, come on, if you if you didn't giggle like a small <laughs> fangirl by the appearance of, of Richard E. Grant, known only as classic Loki, then there is... Just just burn your Marvel credentials right now, and I want Instagram evidence to see that you've done that. So it, it found its feet. There's a couple of things that that I've noticed about the series, which uh, after Andy gives you his his point of view, um, I'll discuss. So Andy, your thoughts so far on episode four of Loki? This was the plot twist, story game changer episode. This is where everything gets shook up. We get to see the Guardians of Time. Who aren't the Guardians of Time? They're just some mechanoids that are being put there to represent things. And it's now got me wondering, who is actually behind all this? Who's behind the TVA? And what are they actually manipulating the perfect timeline for? Is this... I mean, some people online are speculating Mephisto again. Because, <laughs> of, of course, Mephisto. people are speculating Mephisto. Is this more going to tie in with Ant-Man? With um, some, you know... That there was a particular character that we remember from the comics who wanted to create the perfect timeline. Yeah, that's into the Ant-Man. first thing I thought. And I thought, if they do that... I'll, I'll giggle again like a, like a small uh, fangirl. Um, but this, I, I loved the energy of this episode. I thought it, ha- it had momentum from the start all the way through. It still felt like it was having fun making it, but it was definitely going in the right direction. And like you say, that mid-credit thing, as soon as I saw Richard E. Grant as 616 Loki, I was like, oh, oh man, that looks ridiculous, but I can't wait to see yeah. where this goes. That It was the first episode that they'd thrown a mid-credit sting in for. And I expect that we're going to get mid-credit stings on the next couple of episodes. But I am well and truly looking forward to seeing what these next couple of episodes do now that everything has been shook up and the whole Time Variance Authority has been shown to be the con that it really is. As the people within the authority are starting to realise that they've been manipulated and starting to get awareness, who's good, who's bad, who's manipulated, who's brainwashed, we don't know fully at this point in time. But I'm excited to see. Yeah, there were plenty of questions that have got an answer that that we can now look forward to seeing where they they're going to go. I mean, there was the 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 huge twist that uh, well we didn't see coming. Um, and if you haven't seen the show, which is interesting because, well, I'm going to give you a quick spoiler. <laughs> um, Owen Wilson's death, Mobius T. Mobius's death was. I didn't see that coming at all. And how the character, uh, how dispassionate Renslayer is, 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 is a, is a character. I know I didn't realize I'd been reading for years within the elements of, of various Marvel books. Um, so Kang the Conqueror mm. is for me would be the, the, the wizard behind the curtain. If you, if you uh, know your, your film analogies. Yeah. We're probably going to be completely wrong with any theorizing that we do. Uh, the deaths were so well played as well. And like you say, came out of nowhere. And 
you know, to, to then have the audacity to kill off your lead character. And, you know, we've, we're already spoiling it because it's a week behind by the time we go live here. So if you've not seen it by now, sorry, you should have skipped this section of the show. You should have got used to this by now. Um, but, yeah, when Loki gets taken out, and I'd sit and watch this with my daughter each week, and she was just like, oh. And she was taken aback by it. Now, I, I've read enough comic books to know that that was never going to happen. And, and the mid credit sting kind of showed us something different. So does this mean that everyone who gets taken out is going to this new other world where they're all gathering together? Is there a resistance army there of people who've been taken out of timelines? We will get to see that on this next episode. And, oh boy, I am so stoked for it. Yeah, so much to like. Uh, the the interplay between Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston, just fantastic. And and let's not hope that, that that's it. The the development of the, of the Sylvie character... Uh, Renfield, the, the the timekeepers, and and that reveal, of course, the mid mid credits. The one thing I did notice on this, and it made me reevaluate the series, uh, that clearly this this must have been shot during the heart of the pandemic, because I've, mm. I just realised that there's never more than two people in a room talking. Have you have you noticed that? Uh, and and maybe that yeah. has, has has changed the, a lot of what they wanted to do with the series. Uh, and, and changed it in a way that that where it was originally going to go to to where it is now is is a completely different vibe. But I did notice that that you don't see more than two characters usually in a room or in a scene um, in discussions, and that must just come down to one of the infringements that that um, that lockdown brought onto onto production. And I noticed the same thing. Funny enough, in the last few episodes of, of Walking Dead, you never had big sequences because they were they were just usually two characters talking in a room so let's get ready yeah. for tomorrow and let's take a look at what's going to be happening in that episode of loki next week and that's it for this week folks but before we go as you know we always do our neat thing our neat thing you ask yeah something that andy and i have either watched read played ate enjoyed so much that it's become our neat thing for the week. Andy, what is your neat thing for the last week? So I think you're probably going to know where my neat thing's coming from, since though I sent you a message. Humble Bundle this week added a comic book bundle of the Miller World titles. Now, Miller is a bit of a mixed bag for both of us. I'm more of a fan of him than what Lee is, but this bundle is well worth snapping up if you're a fan of even just one piece of his work. The bundle you can get a six-item bundle for as little as 70 pence with Prodigy and Magic Order included in there. But if you go for £17.69 on Humble Bundle, you get Kick-Ass, all the volume one and all the new girl era, Hit Girl, all six or seven volumes, Reborn, Jupiter's Legacy, Chrononauts, American Jesus, Kingsman, uh, Space Bandits, Starlight, MPH, the whole wealth of Miller World titles. Now, for me, obviously, the highlight in this is not just Kick-Ass, which I really have a lot of time for, but Starlight, which is a title that I have championed ever since it came out and say that it's one of his most mature pieces of work. If you're a fan of anything that Mark Miller's ever done, it's definitely worth delving into his other materials because whilst you'll, get, you'll find some that you don't like, you will find quite a few that you do latch onto and you do think, ah, this is what he's capable of when he's not got a big ego. Well worth checking out. That's on Humble Bundle. When you make your donation for how much you want to pay towards it, some of it goes to charity. So it's all for a good cause. You can decide how much goes to the charity as well. So it's not just getting a great deal of graphic novels. 
it's also helping a good organization fantastic okay my neat thing is the return of rick and morty which you can find on channel four right now before it gets its run on netflix oh i'm going to state the obvious rick and morty is a weird weird show it it plays with (laughs) science fiction in such a way that fundamental storytelling often goes out of the window and it's been back now with two episodes and and the other night's episode uh multiplicity is one of those rick and morty episodes that tells you very loudly at the get-go not to get invested in any of the characters because um out of the window went the usual sort of sitcom style to be just just intriguingly well written they these guys play with science fiction in such a a a bold way because never lose sight of what rick and morty is is yes it's a spoof initially on uh, uh back to the future and whether you 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 like rick or not and or whether you like morty or not as characters they are constant game changers in the way that the stories are told they go for absurdist science fiction uh, and tell it in a, in a humorous and, and out there way uh, and season five even though we're two episodes in so far doesn't fail and and the, the one thing i can say about about the latest episode uh, of rick and morty is that it just does away with conventional narrative with with something that is just complicated and ambitious and something that you would not normally find in in a 22 minute uh cartoon series and it's also got very very sweary this season now i don't know if it's always been swearing they bleeped it but this season is now very very sweary so for me my neat thing is rick and morty season five on channel four and that's it for this week folks and uh, thanks for joining us it's been a different episode where we got to talk about the life of richard donner uh, but we'll be back next week with hopefully a great review well we can only say that in advance because we're not time travelers of black widow Andy, look after yourself. And you. And don't forget, next week, we will also provide details of where you'll be able to hear uh, Harvey Morton's Social Sanctuary podcast, which will be going out next Friday, I believe. Uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what we sound like on somebody else's show. (laughs) So we'll see you next week. This is The Film File. And honestly, if it wasn't for Richard Donner, you wouldn't believe that a man could fly. 